Psalm 85 is a request to restore God's people. In 586 BC, the kingdom of Judah had been carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. After 70 years of exile, it was time to return to the land. And so some of the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. That first group returned to a destroyed city and a destroyed temple and surrounded by enemies. Immediately, they set out to rebuild the temple. Nonetheless, they got no further than resetting the foundation. Soon the people began to drift once again into sin. And now the sons of Korah, Korah of the Levites, calls upon God with a request to restore God's people. This psalm breaks into three parts. Verses 1 to 3, praise. Verses 4 to 7, prayer. And verses 8 to 13, peace. So let's consider the three parts of this request to restore God's people. Verses 1 to 3, let's begin with the praise. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Now notice there in verses 1 to 3 that God is addressed directly. And he's addressed as Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God given to the Israelites. It is the name that he gave to them as part of their covenant relationship. And it says that, Yahweh, you showed favor to your land. You have been pleased with your land. Now, what was this favor? This favor was seen in restoring the captivity of Jacob. Of course, Jacob is Israel. Recall that Jacob, uh, the last of the patriarchs, wrestled with God there in the desert, and God called him Israel. And soon the people, his descendants, became known as the people of Israel. Now, God has delivered them from captivity. And this is that 70-year captivity in Babylon. Uh, they've been brought back to the land. Uh, in much the same way as they were delivered out of Egypt, God has now delivered them from Babylon. And this return is a sign of mercy. He, they returned because you forgave the iniquity of your people. Now, the iniquity here is the word for guilt. They had guilt. Why? Because they had sin. They had committed transgression against God. And there were a number of transgressions. None the least was committing spiritual harlotry, cheating on God by worshiping other idols, other false gods. You know, while we don't necessarily worship uh, idols in the sense of uh, little statues and such, uh, we often find ourselves embroiled in idolatry. If there's anything that you have placed before God, before your loyalty to God, before your worship of God, you have committed spiritual idolatry, harlotry. You have cheated on your God. And my friends, make no mistake, just as he sent Israel into captivity, he can do the same to us. But their iniquity has been forgiven. It has been lifted. It has been removed. And notice the parallel here. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. So there's the parallel between forgiveness and covering and iniquity and sin. Now, the idea of covering uh, is the idea of, of atoning or of propitiation. There, there's a, 
uh, covering over of their sin uh, with what? God's mercy. And of course, we think of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that sat upon it and the fact that once a year, the high priest would go in and, and pour out the blood upon the top of the mercy seat and it would cover it, signifying that God had been merciful to his people and their sins had been forgiven. Well, here now again, they have been had their, or they have had their sins forgiven and they're beginning to return to the land. Throughout the Bible, God's judgment is always the result of our moral failure, okay? God's judgment comes when man sins, when man transgresses God's law. And there will never be restoration until there is forgiveness. And there's no forgiveness without repentance. Now, we recall the words of Daniel, the prophet, who was part of the captivity, how he cried out to God. Now, Daniel probably had not been one who had committed spiritual idolatry. He, he, he wasn't guilty of worshiping other gods. Nonetheless, when he prays to God there in Babylon, he lifts up his voice and he prays that God would forgive our iniquity. He identified himself with the people. Even though he individually was not, he identifies himself with his people and he prays for forgiveness. He repents of their sin. Now, so when restoration occurs based on God's forgiveness, God's wrath is lifted. Not a moment before will God lift his wrath until there is repentance. Now, verse 3 continues that his fury has been withdrawn. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away your burning anger. Again, notice the parallel. He withdrew. He turned away from fury, burning anger. And uh, his fury is withdrawn. Literally, he's gathered it in. He's pulled it back in. He's bottled it up. And the word fury, of course, is his overflowing rage. When we sin, God has is full of rage to the point he is boiling over. Now notice the parallel. He turns away from his burning anger. Turns literally from the heat of his anger. And he restores his people. He removes their sin. He rescinds his wrath. Again, wrath is not rescinded until sin is removed. Sin is not removed until there's repentance. And so here is mercy. And, you know, this is what we have in Christ. Christ is our mercy seat. He assuaged God's wrath. Why? Because he poured out his blood and covered our sin so that we could receive mercy when we repent and believe. At that moment, we're set free from Satan's captivity, our sins are canceled, and we're restored into his presence. So his request for restoration begins with praise. Now again, why is he praying for restoration? Haven't they, been, haven't they returned to the land? Yes, but as I said in the introduction, what soon began to happen? They began to drift back into sin. And isn't that so often the case in our Christian lives? We're saved, we're redeemed, you know, and there's this moment where, man, we're laying a good, solid biblical foundation, but soon we begin to drift, slowly drifting in the wrong direction. And before we know it, we're dabbling in sin. Because we know where we've been because of sin in the past should cause us to cry out and ask God for his restoration. So let's go to the prayer in verses 4 to 7. 
Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your indignation towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Now, the issue here is not the past, it's the present. God's wrath is returning. Why? Because they're sinning again. Now, admittedly, the period after the exile was difficult. Take time to read through Ezra, particularly Ezra chapter 9 and verse 10. But nonetheless, despite the difficulty, is no excuse to return to sin. And so the psalmist here prays, restore us, turn us again. He's addressing the God of who? Their salvation, their deliverance. And again, his focus continues to be on God's anger, his indignation. Are you going to be angry? Will you prolong your anger? Notice the emphasis here. Indignation, anger, prolonged anger. Folks, there's two problems that we need to reconcile. The fact of God's wrath and its duration. God's wrath will always come when there is sin. The question is, how long will it last? You know, when you're in the midst of receiving God's wrath, it seems as if it's going to continue forever, as the psalmist says, to all generations. And so it's in that moment that we need to cry out to the God of our redemption, our deliverance, our salvation, to restore us, to revive us, that is, restore us to life again. You see, there's only two options, friends. You're either living in God's wrath or you're living in God's life. Which is it? You know, and I, and I got to be honest, as we look at this pandemic era, in many ways for the church, it was a period of exile. We were exiled. We weren't able to gather together. Once that began to ease, we, we were able to return to the land, return to the church. But just like Israel of old, not everyone returns. Not everyone came back to Jerusalem. Some chose to stay in Babylon. And God had to continue to deal with them. And God had to continue to make things difficult until they too would want to come back. And that's why there were several returns to the land as God worked through them. And that's what we need to be praying for. We need to be praying that there will be a continual restoration, that there will be people continuing to return from their exile, return from Babylon, and come back Uh, into fellowship with the people of God. But don't think for a moment that the people of God that have regathered don't have their issues. Because yes, even as Israel returned to the land, that remnant, that remnant drifted into sin. So we don't want to sit back on our laurels and say, oh, look at us, we who've returned to worship, oh, we're so much better than those who haven't. Wait a minute. You've got to be just as much, as much guard as they, maybe for different reasons. But it's so easy that when we're back in the fellowship that we just sit back and think, okay, we're good now. You know, we, we've reestablished the foundation. Well, I hope we've done more than just reestablish the foundation. But it's so easy to sit back and rest on our laurels and think, okay, everything's fine, everything's good, and we start drifting into sin. Listen, if God's wrath is coming upon those who haven't returned to the land yet, guess what? It's going to come back upon those that much more who are in the land, who have returned, who drift into sin. 
And if you examine your life and you find yourself there, if you find yourself in sin, know this, you are living in God's wrath, not God's life. But nonetheless, both come from him. We can't work up repentance and think that, oh, look, I deserve divine mercy. We don't. The only reason we're able to repent is by God's mercy. All we can do is ask him, Lord, give me mercy. Help me to repent. Help me to uh, be forgiven. And that takes sovereign grace on his part. The responsibility of salvation, of deliverance, of forgiveness is all on God. Our responsibility, repent and believe. Is that a work? No, because we have, it's by grace. The only reason we're able to repent and believe is because of grace. And so the work of restoration is God's work. He alone is the source of wrath. He alone is the source of, of life. And what we must do is pray that God's wrath would be removed and we would be restored to life. The psalmist completes the petition of verse 7, asking God to show mercy, show covenant love, and grant deliverance. Lift your wrath, revive your people, give us joy, and we will know that you are true to your covenant, the God who saves. And then we close with verses 8 to 13. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give him what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Now, the psalmist becomes very personal here. I will hear. He's addressed God. He's cried out for help. He's asked for restoration, and he knows God has heard, and now he is going to listen. You see, prayer is a two-way street here, folks. We pray, God listens. Then God hears and answers. We need to listen. And what God says is shalom. We, he, we will seek shalom to his people. That is God's answer. In other words, God is going to withdraw his wrath. He's going to bottle up his anger. And we're going to once again enjoy the fellowship of shalom, of peace with God. And again, shalom isn't just freedom from war. It's a lifestyle. It's a condition of having health, health of mind, health of of body, health of soul, and, and and not so much physical, perhaps in the in this world of sin that we live in, but definitely spiritual, and certainly one day uh, we will fully know the physical aspect of that. But God says, "Peace upon you, my people," an all-encompassing word of salvation. Indeed, isn't that what salvation is? Having peace with God—that's what atonement accomplishes. And so He addresses the psalmist to God's people. Interestingly, his what? Godly ones. That Hebrew word, godly ones, is the same as our word, Greek word in the New Testament for saints. Now, notice the promise of salvation, the promise of peace is followed by an exhortation. Do not turn back to folly. You know what the word folly is? Stupidity. That's what God calls our sin. Stupidity. When you, when you go into sin, God says, you're being stupid. Stop being stupid. Don't turn back to your stupidity. You know, just because God gives us grace doesn't mean we can be presumptuous and say, okay, it's, I'm all good now. I can go back and do what I was doing again. I can do what I did in the past. No. We are to be in fear. We are to be in reverence, 
before God. I love that word fear. Uh, it has many nuances, but when it relates to the fear of God, it always involves reverence, adoration, and worship. You know, if you're not worshiping God, why not? Why aren't you worshiping? Because you're not fearing God. If you're not fearing God, it's because there's sin in your life. So examine yourself and forsake, confess, loathe that thing and return to your worship. Return to your fear before God. Final verses of this psalm are confessional and and prophetic. But notice here we have some uh, key aspects of God's character. He is full of loving kindness, uh, covenant love, chesed. He's full of truth or trustworthiness. Uh, He's full of righteousness uh, and peace. And so uh, these character traits, these attributes of God, he displays to us and he begins to share with us. Uh, You know, he wants us to know that loving kindness. He wants us to be people of truth. He he imbues us with Christ righteousness and he gives us peace. Three times in verses 10 to 13, the key word here is righteousness. We have God's righteousness or covenant faithfulness, which is tied to peace. You know, the righteousness of God brings peace to God's people. That righteousness is divine. And that righteousness, as I said a moment ago, is then given to us. You know, we, can't, we don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, oh, I can't, I can't obey God. God's lost to it. No, 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 no. What is righteousness? Righteousness is obedience to God. It's conforming to God's standard, God's law. Which, by the way, interestingly enough, God's law parallels his character. God wanted to teach us what it meant to be holy, what it means to be true, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be grace and mercy. That, that he gives his law. Everything in his law is about conforming us to his character. And he's given us, through Christ, the righteousness to conform, to obey. That's the work of sanctification. Obedience to the law will never save you, but I'll tell you, your sanctification, that work of the Holy Spirit in your life, comes about as we submit to God's righteous standard. So, finally... God's works and acts are summed up here in those uh, last verses, 10 to 13, as righteousness. God is righteous. He expects us to be righteous. And we, with the psalmist, ought to boldly say that righteousness goes before God. Make a way for his footsteps. He makes a way for his footsteps. What's our responsibility? To follow. Walk in him. Walk in newness of life. Walk in righteousness. Walk in truth. We are walking, not a pathway that's never been walked before. We're walking in his footsteps. God lives and acts righteously because he is righteous. He expects us, who he's given peace to, who he's given righteousness to, he expects us to live righteously as well. I think of what Abraham said as he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Indeed, he does, and we should too. Do you have peace with God? Now, you know, I'm not talking to unbelievers here. I'm talking to believers. Do you have peace with God? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have peace with God. I was saved. Okay, great. Yes. But your peace may be broken. Right now, if you are 
disassociated from the people of God, if you're disassociated from the presence of God, if you're tolerating sin, if you're mingling with the enemy, my friend, you don't have peace. You didn't lose your salvation. But you don't have peace with God. You don't have fellowship with God. And I would urge you to pray as the sons of Korah did, God, restore us. Restore your people. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, our God, our Lord, our King, into your presence we come through our High Priest, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you are worthy to receive our prayers, our praises, our petitions. You are worthy to receive our worship, our awe, our adoration, our reverence. Father, you have done so much for us. You've given us so much. You've redeemed us. But Father, we confess that we have sinned. I have no doubt that, Lord, you used that pandemic to exile your people. You used it to thin the herd, in a sense, to find out who's real and who isn't. And, oh, Lord, my heart breaks for the many who were so disturbed by that pandemic that they couldn't see your hand at work. So disturbed that they've walked away from you, that they've left you, that they've abandoned you and forsaken you. Perhaps they were never yours to begin with. But if they were, Lord, I pray that you would rescue them. Father, as we have had this opportunity to be restored to the land, we thank and praise you. Father, we pray for the, those that are still exiled, that, Lord, you may work in them and bring them to the land again. I pray, Father, for those who have returned. Prevent your Lord, they would not rest on their laurels, that they would not just sit back and think they're good just because they're back, but that, Father, they would take time to examine themselves, consider their ways. And perhaps, though, even they may be within, maybe even perhaps the fact that they're with the body, with other believers, in worship, in church, doesn't mean that they can sit back and think it's they're all good. I pray, Lord, that as each and every one of us examines ourselves, if we find any kind of sin, we might cry out with the sons of Korah and ask you to restore us. Forgive us. Rescue us. And restore us once again. Lest once again we go into captivity. And so, Father, we just thank and praise you for your protection and your guidance. We ask for your leading and direction. And may you receive all honor and all the glory, both now and forever. Amen.